Welcome to the Cumberland River Compact's River Talks podcast. In each episode of River Talks, we explore a new topic related to the health, enjoyment, and protection of the Cumberland River Basin's water, people, and special places. We sit down with experts, artists, researchers, professionals, and more to share their knowledge and experiences. I'm Katherine Price, your River Talks host. Be sure to subscribe to River Talks to be notified of every new episode. And if you have a moment, please rate and review our podcast. Climate change comes with ample risks for Middle Tennessee, but there is also the opportunity to build resilience in the face of these changes. We know climate change in Middle Tennessee brings more extreme heat and severe storms, which will lead to more frequent and devastating flooding. And we already see these impacts in both urban and rural Tennessee communities. In this episode of River Talks, we are joined by Dr. Janie Camp from Vanderbilt University. Dr. Camp studies the interactions between nature and man-made systems, with a particular focus on identifying risk in key areas. Dr. Camp shares the unique climate vulnerabilities in our rural communities, the ways climate change serves as a threat multiplier, and how critical infrastructure like roads and energy systems can be impacted by climate events. Well, we are very excited today to have Dr. Janie Camp with us to talk about climate change here specifically in Middle Tennessee and what we're expected to see, what we're already seeing, and how that's going to impact us. So um, what exactly are we expecting to see with climate change here locally in Middle Tennessee? Well, I'm glad you asked, and it's an honor to be here. I will preface anything I say with, I'm not a climatologist or a meteorologist. So um, anything I say, take it as I've looked at a lot of the data, I've read reports and things, and I'm using that information to inform my responses and my research and decisions. But looking to the future, a lot of what we're anticipating from the models um, and some of the models we can tap into downscale data that been statistically um, massage to be applicable at a local level. I think we're going to see um, more flooding like we've been seeing. Um, It looks like we're gonna see more days above 95 in the summers. So heat becomes an issue. Um, Droughts um, become more of an issue potentially for us. And we're kind of a weird spot in Middle Tennessee because we've got the bowl with the Cumberland Rim. And so there's some weather patterns that, you know, some things were kind of a unique kind of mid area. So it's hard to say exactly what's going to happen, but I think we're starting to see some of the trends and the changes um, in recent years, these more intense precipitation events interspersed with, you know, durations of dry spells, which makes it harder for us to kind of deal with some of the flow because it may be dry for a few weeks and then we get this really intense rain event and the soil's not prepared to absorb the water so we get more localized flooding and things and um, I think we've seen you know a fairly wet summer um, at least the past few weeks here um, but we've also had some dry spells so I think it's going to be um, not the norm of what we're used to And something that I'm particularly interested in um, related to research and a bit concerned about is in Middle Tennessee, we think 
you know, we're fortunate in that we have access to a lot of natural fresh water. So we've got a lot of streams and rivers. West Tennessee's got more of the aquifer and the groundwater as their source. Um, so I think we take water for granted here, unfortunately, and we're used to having access to fresh water. One of my kind of concerns and things that I keep thinking about related to the future for Middle Tennessee is the availability of freshwater resources. And I don't think, I think we take it for granted. We don't think about um, maybe being as good of stewards of that resource as we could or should be. That water is used not only for recreation, but navigation, um, cooling related to power generation, and then also drinking water supply for many of our communities. Um, so a lot of our local cities, both urban and rural, are pulling from these freshwater, surface water sources. And if we start to see more drought and issues with that, it can affect not only the amount of water, but the quality of the water. That as engineers, uh, some of my colleagues that were on the water treatment side of the house um, and the practitioners have to think about, you know, adapting to, you know, the quality of water coming into the plants to treat, to ensure that we all have safe water. I feel like, you know, when we talk about climate change and when people hear about climate change, they hear about sea level rise, wildfires out west. Um, things that don't really affect us here. And so sometimes it doesn't seem like climate change is affecting Middle Tennessee. And we know that that's not the case. It might not be right now in those extreme ways that we're seeing in some other places, but, you know, these, these flooding events and then these cycles of drought that I think flooding is one of those things where you see it, it's very acute, it's very, here's it's happening, there's a big need. Drought kind of, it sneaks up on people. And so I think you're right that that lack of, of, seeing drought as a potential climate impact could have, you know, pretty um, devastating results in this area if we aren't aware that with those cycles of flooding comes those big cycles of drought and lack of freshwater resources that we've taken for granted for so long. And in Middle Tennessee, you know, extreme weather events, flooding, for example, like the topography, geology of our region, it's been an area that's flooded. That's not really as much of a new thing, but you know, we think about climate change as being a threat multiplier. And so taking an area like Middle Tennessee that's prone to flooding and making those flooding events worse. So how are we already seeing climate change playing out as a threat multiplier in Middle Tennessee? Yeah, I think it is a threat multiplier. I think um, one of the things we're starting to see in recent years, and I think it'll happen moving to the future is more of the extremes. And we've had, uh, you know, the extreme flooding in various areas. We, we had it here in Nashville in 2010. We've had recent flooding in, you know, this year in March in kind of the Nashville area and um, Terra West a little bit in the Waverly area. So it's not just, you know, the nuanced flooding that, you know, may have historically been threat multipliers or game changers. We're seeing more extremes. I think one of the challenges also is thinking about the extreme heats on, you know, we're inland. We hear a lot about the energy and the heat um, and the temperature of the oceans leading to more intensity with hurricanes, you know, the sea level rise issue. But on the inland side, I think the extremes are going to be more extreme than what we have thought. And so that's where that multiplier comes in. I think we're going to see more extremes. Um, 
thinking about heat, one of the things several of us are focused on over at Vanderbilt is thinking about vulnerable populations. And so climate change is a multiplier when you think about those stresses for people that don't have access to basic accommodations like, you know, shelter or cooling in the summer and heat in the winter and food and things like that. So I think climate change is going to exacerbate some of those situations for our more vulnerable populations. We've also, I think it's funny in a way to think about you know, I grew up in Middle Tennessee and what winters were like as a child versus what they're like now. And, um, you know, we had some more extreme temperatures. I can remember even in 2010, we had extreme temperatures in the Nashville area that led to pipe burst in January downtown. You know, those pipes were about 100 years old. So if you put that in context and think we talk about climate change as this global, you know, warming of the earth and the atmosphere oceans but we don't think about you know the extreme colds temperatures that we may see in some areas um so i think the multiplier is you know things that we've seen heat cold flooding drought are just going to be more extreme or become more significant maybe in short durations um periods of impacts but the intensity will be more. And also, I guess I would also add to this, you know, there's been so much focus on sea level rise and, you know, the intensity of the hurricanes, but we get precipitation a lot of times from those Gulf hurricanes. And we've seen the impacts and localized flooding from Katrina and Harvey and, you know, so I don't think we're immune to what's happening in the coastal areas because it does move inland and we have to be prepared for what that's going to bring to us also. Yeah, absolutely. Those, I mean, I think we definitely saw it this year with Hurricane Ida. We had those rainy yeah. days. I remember Hurricane Harvey and, um, you know, I always kind of think about it where I've seen even in the, you know, I haven't lived in Tennessee for that long, but I've seen many days where the school systems are closed due to potential flooding. And that's something that, you know, I've never thought that I would see that there would be this real concern over, you know, we've got this big rain event coming and a lot of our schools are located next to streams. And so we can't, we can't have school on those days. Um, and I think you're right. When we think about climate change as a threat multiplier, there's sort of the scientific threats that it's multiplying in those extreme weather events, but there's also those vulnerabilities. So if it's, you know, if you are somebody who cares about, you know, uh, children experiencing homelessness or, you know, people in poverty or anything, you know, education, all of those things, those inequities are going to continue to be multiplied by the threats of climate change in ways that maybe they haven't been in the past in ways that maybe we aren't 100% sure how that's going to play out. So, you know, there are so many things in the world to care about and put your energy towards. But I think if you can find something that you're already, you know, care about and then understand how climate change is going to impact that, you really start to see that it's it's something everybody can make an impact on and get involved in. I completely agree. And I think if we all, you know, kind of carve out and think about a little thing we can do to kind of help mitigate the situation or help others navigate this as we're all, you know, about and currently undergoing experiencing some of these extreme weather events and hazards. Um, I think it's going to take everyone working together.
you know, in Tennessee, we've got our urban cores, we've got Nashville, we've got Knoxville, Chattanooga, and Memphis, and we think a lot about maybe urban heat in those areas and some of those flash flooding events, but a lot of our state is very rural, and, um, mm-hmm. you know, we've got people in those rural communities. What exactly are we expected to see with rural impacts for climate change? Does it look similar? Are there kind of unique things that we're expecting to see or already seeing in our rural communities? So um, I grew up in rural middle Tennessee, so I absolutely you know, care about the rural community aspect here. I think one of the challenges we see is there is a lot of focus on the urban areas. And like you said, the urban Helon island effect and stuff. And, you know, one of the challenges I see moving forward is, you know, climate change, it knows no boundaries. And climate change doesn't pick and choose who will be affected. You know, it's not, you know, it's not an individual with, you know, special powers saying, hey, I'm going to affect this city or this city. It just um, happens. And I think we all need to be prepared, whether you're in an urban environment or a rural environment. And I think um, we could see the same hazards. So we can see the extreme heat and we can see flooding um, across both urban and rural landscapes. I think the impacts will be different and the response will be different. And so I think it's less about climate change being different in some of those areas as opposed to how do we you know respond and how prepared are we to deal with what you know is thrown at us and the differences i think will be highlighted in the response and recovery and the planning and part of that is the difference in availability of resources so in more urban areas you do have like in Nashville we have you know transit options for people to get around Um, we have um, heating and cooling centers for those vulnerable populations which may not really exist in more rural areas in rural areas we have more reliance on you know the local farm and you know, you may be a rural farmer, and so the impacts are going to be more direct to you and to your livelihood, potentially, if you have flooding that wipes out your crop or you have a drought, as opposed to in the urban areas, much of the livelihood is not tied to nature and um, products coming from nature. So I think we'll see potentially greater impacts in some of the rural areas, but different. Like in urban areas, you have the high population density, so maybe more people are directly displaced from flooding or events like that, like we've seen from Ida in the New York area. But in the rural areas, you know, you may be affecting fewer people, but more significantly directly affecting their livelihoods when you have flooding and other impacts. I also think, you know, there's a um, limitation. We have limited communication to send out warnings and, you know, help people, you know, find information and resources for recovery. So thinking about broadband access and things like that, and then resources for some of those more vulnerable populations. Like it's harder because you're more dispersed population in rural areas to help people get to you know, areas for cooling um, or heat when it's an extreme hot or cold day and they may need those resources. So I think, I guess in short, 
the we can't say that you know climate change will be different in urban versus rural areas beyond like the heat island effect and some of the urban flooding from impervious areas and those things but i think the impacts may be more significantly to an individual in the in the rural areas but more people may be affected from one event in an urban area you're spot on in terms of you know climate change not you know, impacting the whole state, you know, regardless of where you live and where you are. Um, And then looking at those rural populations and understanding some of the unique vulnerabilities that those populations have that are different from our urban populations and how, like you were saying, being very dispersed, you know, broadband access, we've seen a lot of how access to internet, you know, is, is, so vital over the past, you know, two years with the COVID pandemic and that, that connection and how do you get resources and things like that. And I think we saw a little bit of that in, in Waverly when that flooding event happened, that, that it was, you know, further away from that sort of hub of Nashville. And there was not a lot of maybe as many resources to that area right away as there had been in some of the Nashville events, just because it was a little bit more isolated, smaller community, but, you know, extremely devastating event that happened there. Well, I know with a lot of your research at Vanderbilt, you focus on sort of risk and resilience and how we can look at all these impacts that are happening and think about, you know, what else might be impacted. And so um, I'm wondering if you could talk about some of our infrastructure and how that might be impacted by climate change. So whether that's our our roads, our water treatment plants that might be located, you know, in lowland areas and even a lot of our energy sources. So I think the key issue, and I have colleagues working on this, and it's something that I'm interested in, is thinking about not just individual assets, but networks and systems and connectivity across different sectors of infrastructure as we move into the future. The obvious things that we're probably going to see is, you know, roadways affected, flooded, maybe parts of communities cut off due to flooding. Um You mentioned the water treatment plants and those things. Well, you know, they are close to water bodies by proximity, but, you know, something we have to think about is where's their power source? We've seen this play out here in Nashville. One of our water treatment plants was underwater in 2010. You know, it was flooded, so that cut our capacity for, you know, potable drinking water for the community down by about half. And Metro Water's done a good job working to establish alternate power supply and uh, make that water treatment plant more um, robust and resilient to future flooding events. But I think we often don't think about the small utilities in the rural areas and they may not have um, access or really have the capacity to go after funding or secure funding to Harden their infrastructure um, using the common term to, you know, kind of put in flood protection of things on the water side. And I think we also have to think about, you know, where is our power generation? Do we have redundancy there? Um, so many things are tied to power generation, our communication systems, our transportation systems. So think about all the traffic lots and um response mechanisms, um, emergency response tied to communication, Um, even the water supply and distribution, you know, there's pumps and (laughs) lots of things tied to, you know, power 
that we need to probably think more closely about that. And even fuel, um, we're doing a project looking at um, petroleum products coming into Nashville, ten to the Middle Tennessee area. It's a port resilience project. And you don't think about ports and petroleum products, but, you know, our fuel, and so that's fuel for, you know, individuals and emergency response and those things all are, you know, relying on specific sources. And, you know, obviously for emergency response, they do have some backup storage and those things. But if you are an individual and need fuel to get someone in your family to the hospital and the pumps can't work because there's not power and there's no fuel, then that becomes a real issue. Um, so I think we need to think about kind of the connectedness of systems um, when talking about infrastructure, not just, oh, this road may be out due to flooding. What are the other potential um, secondary and tertiary impacts of an event? And so there's a lot of infrastructure concerns and thoughts. And I think we're all starting to look more proactively at the future and what we need to do to make the communities more resilient, especially given recent events. Yeah, it's always those things that you don't think about, like the road. You're like, okay, if the road is flooded out, I can't go here. But then, yeah, like what if the gas goes out? What if this goes out? And, you know, um, this is not a good comparison, but yesterday was the day that Facebook and Instagram went down and suddenly everybody realized how much all these things were tied to this Facebook plugin on different websites, you know, and um, suddenly everything kind of changed. And so it's those things you don't think about that end up being what Perfect. kind of gets you when there's an event that's happening. So I know in Tennessee, you know, we are a very long state. So we've got, you know, all the way from Memphis to Bristol, Tennessee. How does that impact how you all are looking at that system of infrastructure when you really have these long distances that the state is trying to look at infrastructure impacts? So I guess our approach thus far, we've done some work with TDOT and others kind of thinking about resilience and vulnerabilities of infrastructure systems under future climate. So you can't take the state as a whole. So a lot of the climate data we can access and look at kind of at county level. And so we've taken the approach of looking at kind of the county level, but it could be drilled down further to look at individual assets within a county. Another um, key consideration is, you know, a road doesn't necessarily just stop at the county line. So there is connectivity. And so there's a need for um, communication and coordination across jurisdictional boundaries. And we do see different things um, similar to the water resources side um, as you move across the state. So West Tennessee is more reliant on groundwater. So maybe some of the drought may or may not be as impactful to them, but they are a low-lying area. And so flooding could be an issue. They have different soil types than in Middle Tennessee and East Tennessee. Um, we've seen, you know, the wildfire in East Tennessee several years ago. So we have to think about the impacts of drought and accessibility of water there to put out fires. But it's not limited to East Tennessee. We can have fires, wildfires in West or Middle under the right conditions. I think it's hard to look at the state as a whole because we have different geography and soils and um, terrain. But I think... That's when it becomes less of a state focus and more of a local focused issue to think about what can you do in your community? What are the vulnerable assets? Who are the vulnerable people? And 
how would different climate scenarios affect them locally and what can be done about that? Yeah, definitely taking that state and splitting it up into three, at least to start, and then getting even more localized seems to be the best approach with how we work here in Tennessee. You know, we've talked a lot about the climate impacts in Middle Tennessee, and there are threats, they are happening now, there are things that we expect to continue to amplify in the future, you know, for example, drought and water resources. But we also at the same time have a lot of people moving to the Middle Tennessee region, maybe also because they're coming from places like California, where they've been under years of drought, and now they're coming into an area that feels a lot less threatening than some of those communities, those coastal communities, or those Western communities. Um, How might this influx of people and this change in population impact what we're going to see in the future with climate change as we get more people moving here? We do risk analysis, and risk is frequency of a hazard happening times the consequences. So as you have more people, there's more potential for consequences, um, not just in economic terms. So I think with the influx of people, one of the challenges we're starting to see is, um, especially in the urban areas and some of the sprawl that's happening. So we're losing some of those natural resources, the tree canopy and those things that could help mitigate some of the heat and Um, also help retain some of the moisture and um, mitigate some of the flooding that we could have in the future. So I think there's the need to, you know, try to protect natural resources. I know that's something that you all are a proponent of at the Compact. Um, And there's that. We also have to think about just where are people going and to what extent, and then we have, you know, housing issues here, affordable housing issues where people being pushed out and displaced to, um, thinking about the sprawl, but also a key issue and concern that we've been looking at some in partnership with Metro Water is kind of, you know, the urban flooding, um, to what extent is that happening in areas where we have vulnerable populations, maybe, you know, gentrification and some of this infill development may be contributing to more impervious area that's leading to more localized flooding that we maybe didn't anticipate when the stormwater systems and sewer systems were put in place and regulations. Um, like Nashville's got a low impact development regulation, but you know, we have to start thinking about when we have, you know, all these people moving in and they're wanting to live in the core and houses are being tore down on lots and to put in, to what extent may that, you know, exacerbate some of the urban flooding issues, the localized flooding, um, which is runoff from, you know, these precipitation events. Also think about, and colleagues of mine and I talked some about, you know, the access to resources as some of this is happening and people are moving out to more affordable areas, to what extent are they, you know, having to commute more, being pushed further away from, you know, the neighbors that would check in on them and things like that. So kind of that connectedness of community and, you know, maybe they can't get to the doctors easily or get access to, um, other things that they need as easily as we have kind of this influx of people coming in and building and gentrification happening. My favorite term is unintended consequences. I don't think we fully realize some of the 
consequences of the growth of Nashville and the surrounding community yet. And it could potentially be compounded with climate change. Um, so I think there's there's a lot of things coming into play there. Yeah, one that, you know, recently clicked in my mind was, you know, we in Nashville, all the water flows towards us because the Cumberland River is right here. And so that's why Nashville, you know, people have lived in this area for you know centuries. And now people are moving further and further away to get to more affordable areas where maybe they're up on a hill and the water flows away from them rather than towards them. And like we were talking about earlier, that conversation around drought and water resources gets amplified when you now have people moving to areas where maybe there are just already limited water resources. And so I think that's another one that has started to make a lot more sense in my head. Just it sounds so basic, but when someone told me that, I was like, oh, that just like clicked in my head about how that could be a real impact down the road. Right. I think as we have more population, there's more demand on our water treatment system and other infrastructure systems. So as we think about water resource availability, you know, we have to think about how many people can we, you know, really provide water for in an efficient and cost-effective manner. There may be, if we start to see more drought, a breaking point of, you know, we just don't have, you know, the quantity and quality of water to produce, you know, really efficient and, you know, cost-effective drinking water here. We are very fortunate in our, you know, low water rates in this area and power. And I think that's something we may all have to start wrestling with moving to the future is, you know, it may cost more to treat the water to the level that's expected. And it may cost more to have power as, you know, the, there's system disruptions and we need to shift towards more renewables to um, mitigate some of the disruptions and strain on the systems. Yeah, it's hard to think about water resources being constrained in middle Tennessee, but I think, you know, we hear it time and time again from people that it really is something that um, we're looking towards. So I encourage people that if you're just now starting to think about that, to really start to, um, you know, look into it, understand a little bit more how water is priced, how you're using it, where it's coming from, and how that might be impacted into the future. So we've been talking a lot about the impacts and sort of what yes. might be happening, what is happening, but, you know, we and still remain very hopeful because there is a lot of opportunity to implement changes both on an individual level and a system level, technology, all the things that we need to build ourselves, uh, you know, more climate resilient future. So what do you kind of coming from your perspective, envision when you think about a climate resilient future in Middle Tennessee? That's a, a tough question. Um, so I guess when I think about a climate resilient future for Middle Tennessee, I'd love to see us really kind of um, be more open-minded and creative when it comes to thinking about solutions and individual contributions to those solutions. Um, I'm a huge proponent of education and outreach. And I think a key piece of being resilient is public education, K-12 education, and helping everyone kind of understand we're all in this together. But you know, there's things we can all do to make a difference. Um, and one of those, you know, is to be personally prepared. 
understand, you know, where the flood zones are and whether you're in it, have insurance, because that is one way to help you get back on your feet as an individual if you are impacted by an extreme event. So I think individually being prepared, um, I have elementary age children and they understand mom is never going to buy a home in the flood zone because, and they understand things close to rivers and streams could be in the flood zone and it could be flooded. So I think we need to be more aware. We need to think more um, proactively about how we make decisions, where we make investments um, and make those investments, not to put things back post disruptive event or as we're building new, we need to really be proactive and start to think about what future climate means and, you know, would look like in our communities. I guess one of the things that frustrates me the most is when we have a significant event like Waverly or flood in 2010 that we saw here and Katrina and Ida and stuff, when we're building back, that is the time to really be somewhat aggressive and proactive and say, we're going to build for the next 30 or 50 years, not for the next five years. And let's not just look at historic data. Let's look at the future. We have data we can use. Let's use that data to make informed decisions to minimize the impacts moving forward. And I guess that's like one of my biggest pet peeves is we need to stop relying solely on historical data and information and really start looking to the future, um, not just as community leaders and those, you know, and making decisions about investment and infrastructure, but individually. Um, where do we want to live? What makes sense? And, you know, being good stewards of the natural resources we have, I think, is key to, you know, helping ensure that we are prepared to move into the future and some of those resources are there to help mitigate the impacts. One of the hardest things for me is thinking about, you know, being a parent and the future is my kids' future. And what is the world going to be like for them when they're young adults? And, you know, how many days over 95 are they going to experience in the summer where you don't go sit under the shade tree and just enjoy a glass of lemonade because it is so hot and humid you just can't stand to be outside. I think there's a lot of like looking to the future and really, you know, utilizing the data and information we have to make better decisions. Absolutely. I agree. Looking at, you know, these opportunities that we have to build for the future. And I think it's exciting in many ways. And I work with a lot of young people that see that opportunity, that see, you know, they're ready to restructure. They're ready to do the things that we need to do to build for that 30, 50, next hundred years. And so I think we can, and like you said, we've got the data, we have the tools we need to do that. And, and I think it's a mind shift for everybody at the policy level, at the individual level, you know, to, to think that far into the future and really uh, you know, prepare and be resilient, but be hopeful and be still excited about, you know, a future for everybody. Um, well, Dr. Camp, thank you so much for joining me today on the River Talks podcast. This was a wonderful conversation and full of rich information. And I'm excited to just dive into all of these, um, all of these ideas a little bit more.
I really appreciate the opportunity. It's been great chatting with you and um, I appreciate the opportunity to share some of my thoughts on these issues. Um, you can tell, I think that this is something I care about, not just as, you know, my work, but, um, you know, I live here, I grew up here and this is a special area and I'd love to see, you know, few generations really enjoy it as much as I have, regardless of the climate impacts. Thank you to Dr. Janie Camp for joining us on this week's episode of River Talks. If you'd like to learn more about what was mentioned in this episode, you can visit our blog at cumberlandrivercompact.org slash blog.